Welcome to the audio podcast for Beit Abba, the Messianic Jewish ministry at the Father's House. We exist to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people and to connect Christians to Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith. Now, a subtitle for this message could be How Hanukkah Saved Christmas. I know it may sound a little arrogant or it may sound like I'm uh, sort of stepping on some cultural toes, but the reality is that if there had not been a Hanukkah, 165 BC, where the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, the Jewish life, and the worship of the one true God was preserved, there would be no Joseph, no Mary, or no Jesus, which means there would be no salvation for you and for me. So I really believe that. Once again, God comes through as Shomer Yisrael, the watchman on the wall, the one who watches over Israel and does not slumber or sleep. And once again, he preserves the Jewish people, in this case, primarily, ultimately, so that the lineage of Jesus could come forth. Right? So when you look at this small group of people in the world, I think there's only 14 million of us. There's very few Jewish people. You got 1.7 billion Muslims and over a billion Christians, and you know, there's about 14 million Jews. God preserves this line from the beginning of time all the way up through post-Holocaust to the establishing of Israel. He preserves this line because it has to do with his purposes. So I honestly believe that Hanukkah saved Christmas. Now what we see about Jesus at Hanukkah is that he is the light of the world and the Lamb of God. And I'll illustrate it in a moment, but Something that most of your Jewish friends do not know, and many, many Christians do not know, is that Hanukkah takes place between Malachi and Matthew in the Christian Bible. The Jewish Bible is a little different order, same books. It takes place between the so-called silent years. Not so silent if you were in Israel at the time that Greek was oppressing you, and God raises up deliverers to save your life and preserve the lineage of Messiah but we call them theologically the silent years. It makes us feel good in seminary, I guess. <laughs> Not silent, he is the God who is there. Yes. And so in this te- intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, there's a 400 year period there, and 165 BC, the greatest power of the world, which was the Seleucid Greek Empire, decided that everyone was going to have to serve the Greek gods. So we don't see Hanukkah in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, except in Daniel 9, because he predicts it and prophesies it, but he doesn't call it Hanukkah. And we don't see it in the New Testament except one time. The only time we see the mention of Hanukkah in the entire Bible is when Jesus celebrated it. Did you know he celebrated Hanukkah? Well, you do, because you're homeboys. You're just like, you're the home crowd. So you know that in John 10, 22, in John 10, 22, the only mention by name, but in in your English translation, it says, then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua, Jesus, walked in Solomon's porch. Dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. It's the only time we see it mentioned directly in that way in the entire Bible. So then people say to me, well, but it relates to a story that happened in between the Bible, and I only read the Bible, and I only follow Jesus. Okay, he celebrated Hanukkah. I leave the rest to you. (laughs) Now, it's leading up to Christmas. We're in this fall season leading up to winter when we celebrate Christmas as the Christian world. 
And I want to say it's always good to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Amen? Amen. I do it every day. When I wake up and I'm still breathing, thank you, Jesus. I'm celebrating. I am celebrating his life. I'm ce- Go ahead. You can clap. It's fine. I get it. How grateful. Do you think eternity will even be long enough for us to praise him, to thank him, to understand the mathematical precision and the artistic beauty, the majesty of everything he has done in your life, things you've seen and things you haven't seen yet? It will take, it'll take eternity. It's always good to celebrate the birth of Yeshua. But this month, this dark month of Kislev, Kislev 25, actually, is the time that Hanukkah was celebrated because it commemorates these events that happened in between the Testaments. So it's not a Jewish Christmas, but it's close. It's a close relative. It's actually a a literal relative. The context for John 10, 22 is that season in John 8, 9, and 10 that started at Tabernacles. See, we're in the fall. Started at Sukkot, at Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and goes through chapter 9 to the healings that he did this particular healing that we'll get to in a moment, and then into this John 10 where he's actually in the synagogue, in the temple. And John 9 is where we see him expressing himself as the light of the world. Now, previously at Sukkot, at Tabernacles, he was also as the light of the world because the whole city was lit up by menorahs during the time of Sukkot. They say if you haven't been to Jerusalem during Sukkot, you don't know what joy is. By the way, you should come to Israel with us. You can ask anybody that's been with us. These are life-changing trips. The Bible will go from black and white to technicolor, guaranteed. Not because of who we are. Maybe we're involved a little, but it's mostly because the anointing of the Lord is on pilgrimage, Psalm 84. He blesses pilgrimage. Blessed are those who make pilgrimage. So you come with us, and you'll actually see where this miracle happened. In John chapter 9, Yeshua was passing by. He saw a man who had been blind since birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Yeshua answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be brought to light in him. Then he says, we must do the works of the one who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember that as we get in a moment to talk about the Hanukkah. He's the light of the world, first light. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. He told him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, as in I, Jesus, and the sent one. I came from there. So he went away, washed, and came back seeing. I don't know about you. But if some pastor wants to spit on the ground and make mud out of that spit and put it on my eyes as a prerequisite feeling, I'm going to have some resistance. I'm going to be a little bit like, I don't see how this is going to work. And in fact, it's disgusting. (laughs) But two elements are revealed in this story. One is the desperation and the openness, the authenticity I see it in my counseling office all the time. God responds to authenticity and brokenness, brokenheartedness. The other part that really caught me at my attention this time is that it's disgusting unless the one who's making the mud is 100% man and 100% God. And then the DNA of heaven is being put 
on your eyes. And we live in a world where we're all fascinated with DNA, we're all fascinated with ancestry and CSI and DNA, and you know, your DNA is everywhere and you're in trouble already, and, you know. We're just kind of getting up to speed with that. But God touched. And I would submit to you that when Jesus said, it's necessary for me to go away because I will send the Ruach HaKodesh, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will lead you into all truth. I would submit to you that you carry the same spiritual DNA. If you've said yes to Yeshua, and you have received him, and the Holy Spirit is alive in you, and you are leaning into this because you've been born again. You've been transformed by the work of God. You know, and some days are better than others. I get it. We, you know, we, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, with cracked pots. I get it. But you have the same DNA. You have the DNA of heaven that allows you to touch to encourage, to transform, to change, to bring a word, to bring a healing, to bring something to the world around you that is as lightening as the light that was brought to the blind man. That's who you are. That's who you are, and Jesus is demonstrating it. Now this season from Tabernacles to Hanukkah that he were walking in in John 8, 9, and 10 is, is where the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are really disputing the messiahship, the authority, he's beginning to be more and more overt about who he is, and they're resisting him, they're resisting him. He's talking about his oneness with the Father. The miracle sight comes. He is describing all these things, and then he's walking at Hanukkah, the festival of lights, the season of dedication. He's walking as the light of the world in the temple. He is the oil. <laughs> He's the one who provides the oil. He's the oil, he's the one who provides the oil, and he's in the house. That's why I say, without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. Because these things had to happen for the light of the world to come forth. Daniel in chapter nine spoke about this, and I I won't go into the whole story, but he spoke about, he gave a prophecy in nine and in chapter 11 that speaks about what would come later, which was this 165 BC challenge to the Jewish life. And he spoke about a one, a, um, an evil man that would arise, an evil prince that would arise and would be over the whole world and it would require that the world follow after the small g, Greek gods of the day. He would require that essentially there would be one world religion and it would not be the Jewish religion or the worship of the one true God at Jerusalem. But all these Greek gods would be worshiped. And he required that the Jews would, would stop Sabbath Stop meeting on Shabbat. He required that they would stop reading the Torah. The scrolls were burned. And he required that they would submit to and serve the gods of Greece, especially the god Zeus, the main honcho of the small g Greek gods. Not only so, he set up a a statue to Zeus in the temple. And since that wasn't quite enough, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. So that the temple was made what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. The first fulfillment of that prophecy happened in 165 BC, but there's another one coming. Because folks, we're in a warfare, whether we see it or not, we are in a warfare against a one world system that says that everything is, li- everything is okay except what you believe. We're in, a, we're in a battle that says, Worshiping the one true God, gathering here, for example, is really not, it's kind of intolerant and kind of separatist and kind of not what we're doing anymore. 
The Bible, antiquated, mythological, you know, you can't live by that. You can't believe that that's real. How far away are we from the potential for banning these things, taking the Bible out of the schools that already happened? Well, when will they come and start to burn the books? When does that happen? So you, you find yourselves connected to this story that was about the people of Israel, this, this annoying little group of people. No matter which empire rises up, it's always the Jews that just won't go along with it. Good news and bad news. <laughs> you have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel according to Ephesians chapter two. So as Israel goes, so goes the church. And this is a wedding that was made in heaven, a match made in heaven from before the foundation of the world. And that's why you are drawn out on a Saturday night in spite of the traffic and the tiredness from the week. You're drawn out because you know this has something to do with the destiny of the church and the future of the church leading up to the return of the Lord. Amen. And it does. It does. It's totally connected. And Hanukkah is kind of one of the most perfect pictures of the end time when another ruler will arise. Now, it gets better or worse. The man who arose was called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means I am the image of God. The Jews behind his back called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means a madman, because huh. they understood. But the idea is that there were enough compromising Jews in Israel to go along with the Greek thinking and the Greek modality so that it looked like all was lost and there would be no Sabbath, there would be no books, no Torah, there would be no circumcision, no covenant, no, none of the feasts, none of, the, none of it would, would happen anymore. There was enough compromise. That's why if you're not in a strong congregation, get yourself to a strong congregation. I believe the Father's house is a strong congregation. We need to be connected and be able to be with each other as we see the days approaching because things are going to get bumpy as we go towards the return of the Lord. It's gonna be both and, folks. We're gonna see, continue to see tremendous revival around the world and God willing in America, God willing in Northern California. But it will come in the midst of some very rocky and difficult times, internationally and locally. That's going to happen. Jesus said that, not me. But as revival is going and breaking out and growing around the world, we need to be, help, be with each other to sharpen one another and to remind one another to stay in the word and to stay focused on him and to stay true to who he is. Because many of the Jews at the time of the the Maccabees, which I'll get to in a moment, this 165 BC, they fell away and they followed after the Greek gods. Now the festival of lights is also a festival of fights because there arose this hillbilly group of Levitical priests. They were not soldiers. Mattathias and his sons, Judah, Jonathan and others, these, these priests rose up and they said, we will not bow down. Maybe they read Daniel's prophecies. Oh, king, if you take our lives or if God leaves us in the furnace, we will not, we will not bow down to your statue. This little group of people would not bow down to the powers of the day, to the drift of the culture, to the intrusion of the culture into the church, into the life of God and the true worship. They would not bow down. And they stood up and they resisted. And they resisted four times. 
This is a tiny group of Levitical priests who were not soldiers, and they resisted the greatest army of the day and won. How does that happen? The same way that when you come with us to Israel and you meet some of these Israeli generals, secular men, secular generals, they'll say, everybody thinks you have the greatest army in the world, most amazing army. I guess, you know, we've got some stuff going on, but the fact is these are children, 18 years old. The only reason we still exist has got to be because of God. I don't even know if I believe in God, they will say, but I do know there's no way that these battles and this, this existence could continue without something greater than ourselves. Do you see? It's like the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, what he said about, he said, to, to be a realist in Israel, you have to believe in miracles. <laughs> there's no other way. There's no other way. So the Festival of Lights is about this battle that took place and the resistance that arose to resist Hellenism or the Greek way of living, which worshiped man, had man as the standard, the human body, that's why they forbade circumcision because it would be marring the human body, but it was a sign of covenant to the Israelites. But they, they put this structure on them to try to form them into the likeness and image of this world. That is happening in our day. It is happening in our country, it is happening around the world, it is happening so seriously in Europe that I, I don't know how God will recover Europe. I know there are pockets of revival and I'm hopeful, but it is down the road a piece. Well, Zeus was being lifted up and the Maccabees, so-called, they were, they were the, the sons of Mattathias. Judah was the main son who was the soldier, became the soldier leader. And the name Maccabee has to do with a, a, an acrostic, an acronym, an acrostic that is about the miracle that took place there. Maccabee, if you break the letters down, it spells out Mi Kamocha Be'elim Adonai, which is prayed every day by the Jewish people. And it's taken from Exodus, it's taken from the Song of the Sea, from the Song of Deliverance, when Moses, and Miriam and Aaron came across with the Israelites. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, doing wonders? It's the Shira Hayam, the, the song of the sea in Exodus 15. And Maccabee is an acrostic, a kind of a cool little thing that God put in there. Now, they had to, they had to rededicate the temple. Once they beat, in these four battles, four major battles, they beat back the largest army in the world. The first battle, they took the weapons of the enemy. And then they were able to come back. And these Greeks came against them with elephants. I mean, it was like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. Do you understand? What did Gimli say? What? Outnumbered? No chance of success? Let's go, right? <laughs> and the Maccabees, the hammer, Maccabee means hammer, Jeremiah 23 says that your word is like fire and your word is like a hammer. These guys said, we will not draw back. We will not give up. We're gonna keep going. We're gonna go on with you, God. And that's a word to the church today. We need to encourage each other to not draw back, to not give up, to continue to go forward. And they won. They won and they rededicated the menorah. If you could show that menorah. They rededicated the seven candelabra that's in the, that's in the sanctuary of the temple. It's a picture of a priest looking at, there he is. I knew he was right behind me. They rededicated this. 
And now the menorah, you know, you may think the star of David is the symbol of Israel. It's the flag. And it's a beautiful flag that preaches. If you don't hate it, it does preach about God. But the menorah, the lampstand, is the actual symbol of the nation of Israel. It is the symbol because God has called the Israelites to be a light to the world. And so that is the menorah. And, and some rabbis say that the reason why the seven-branch menorah, not this one, we'll get to that in a moment, the seven-branch menorah is become the symbol is because there are seven words in Zechariah 4.6. In English, we say, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Lo v'chayil v'lo v'koach ki im bruchi. Seven words. Lo v'chayil v'lo v'koach ki im bruchi. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Does that describe every good and perfect gift that you've received from the Lord? Does that describe who he is? With all of our shenanigans, with all of our backslidings, with all of our difficulties, with all of our whining and complaining and moaning, with all of our stumbling forward, with all of our natural strength, it's always not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so this menorah becomes the symbol of Israel, understanding that without God, we have nothing. And the priests rededicated the temple. That's why Hanukkah, dedication, commemorates this time. And that's why Jesus was so adamant about being there and walking in the temple because he was saying, I know that that history happened. It's not in the Bible. It's in the book of Maccabees, a book of history. And you say, oh, Miles, I only follow the Bible. Yeah, okay. But I've been in Israel near Emmaus where they are unearthing the tombs of the Maccabees. And I'm telling you, it's archaeologically sound. I've been with a young man. When we were leading a tour in Israel, we went to the Temple Mount Sifting Project where you can actually sift through the rubble that was thrown out by the Muslims and find different things. And we were there sifting, and this young man who was a backslidden Christian, right days after I had preached about the lost coin that God found, that God brought back to himself, this young man found a Maccabean coin in the Temple Mount Sifting Project. It's historically accurate, even though it's between the two testaments. And so the temple was rededicated. And this rededication was, it's symbolic to us. And over the years, the rabbis have taught about there being oil, the sacred oil that lasted for eight days instead of one, could be. But here's a thought. The temple had been desecrated. That means that they couldn't have Sukkot in the, in the fall. In the spring, in the fall. They could not have tabernacles, which is an eight-day festival. It's seven days long with an eighth day celebrating the gift of the word, the gift of the Torah, Simcha Torah, the joy of the Torah. They couldn't have that eight-day celebration. I wonder if in this dedication, maybe the oil lasted eight days, that's awesome. I mean, I need bigger miracles than that personally, but I get that that is pretty cool, and that is traditionally how we celebrate. And I'm not against that. Like, I'm not against Christmas trees. But I wonder... I have to wonder whether it was also that finally, when this was cleansed in Kislev 25 in the dead of winter, that they were able to keep a delayed or deferred Sukkot. They were able to keep that seven, eight, excuse me, eight day celebration in order to say, we're back. The temple is back. The light is back. It's been cleansed. It's been rededicated. And that's a key for us. This is a season of rededication for you and for me. I mean, I'm going to eat like crazy. I'm going to eat all the things I'm not supposed to eat for Christmas and for Hanukkah, two different kinds of food, but I'm going to keep doing it. But really what's happening is it's a season of rededication because you are the temple of God. 
you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Lord. And just like he said that he is the light of the world, if he dwells in you, you are the light of the world. And if you're here tonight, by the way, and you don't know Jesus in your heart, please do not leave here without him. Please do not leave here without him. He will take you on an adventure like none other. And that won't always be easy, but you will never be alone. And then you'll see him face to face in eternity. He will give you an abundant life here and in the life to come. But when Galatians tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So when Jesus comes, it's the fulfillment of the promises back in Genesis about this battle. The Jews were playing it out with the Greeks, but it really goes back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he, the Messiah, will bruise your head, snake, serpent, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. It's going to be costly. It's going to be costly for him. So the oil multiplied. God preserves the Jewish people because they're chosen and because he promised to bring forth the seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen? So let's look at the Hanukkah. Let's look at the menorah. Catherine said a little bit about it here. But when you see this picture, not that one, mine, Hanukkah menorah. Hello. Well, this will do. There it is. That's much better. Um, the center candle is called the shamash. It's the Hebrew word for servant. And the servant candle, every night of the eight nights, it's taken and it lights one for the first night, two for the second, three for the... It keeps lighting and lighting until... As the week goes on, there is more and more light. As the life with Yeshua goes on, there's more and more light. Now the servant is above all, but it's come to light that which is below. Does that sound familiar? The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. So Jesus, as the light of the world, as the candle, the highest, highest of the high, Light of the world has come and has lowered himself to light our spirits, to light you and me here. And it's an ever-expanding light. So we see him as the light of the world, but we also see him as the Lamb of God in this season. When I was growing up, used to, you know, we would have this like kind of on again, off again, relationship with the Christians and Catholics around the neighborhood, Jewish enclave. My parents built a synagogue when they moved out of the Lower East Side to the Promised Land, Queens, Flushing, Queens, oh boy. <laughs> and so my uncles and my dad built the, helped to build the synagogue, and there was a Jewish community around the synagogue, but we were mostly in a Catholic neighborhood. Uh, St. John's University was down the street. One of our friends went there, Dennis Cohen, we called him Cardinal Cohen, and he went to St. John's University, and it was kind of that neighborhood. And so we would like do Hanukkah, but kind of drive around and look at all the rich, fancy Catholic houses with the lights on and all this. It was really pretty exciting. Pretty exciting stuff. But <clears throat> I never understood until Yeshua called me that this entire season of light comes back to, first of all, who he is as the light of the world. But it was in winter. And I didn't really ever get that because I pictured these shepherds out in the snow, shivering, like watching over the flocks at night. You know, it's a, it, I just didn't get it until it kind of occurred to me. When I see Jesus in every single one of the festivals, I have to wonder 
Is it possible that he was conceived at Hanukkah as the light of the world and born nine months later at Sukkot as Emmanuel, God tabernacling with humanity? And there's a logic in that, and the fall idea of the, you know, the raising up the lambs, and then they would be ready in the spring for Passover. And I don't know. I can't tell you for sure, but I can tell you this. There's a history that points to something like this. You see, when, when, when Joseph was instructed to go back to Bethlehem for the census, because that's where they were from, he had to do that, because Micah had already said that was going to happen. Micah chapter 5, he says, You, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are the least among the cities of Judah, yet out of you will come he whose goings forth are from everlasting to everlasting. He had to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. David is from the tribe of Judah, was raised in the city of Bethlehem. He had to be from that tribe, in that city, from the lineage of David. So Joseph had to go from Nazareth with Miriam, Mary, to have the baby. It says this in Luke 2, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. Now, this is the King James Version, and it's the version I grew up with, with the Hallmark cards with the snow on the roofs and the baby in the manger. It's this thing I have on my mantelpiece right now. I have the crash with the, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> Except, is there another meaning to the Bethlehem story? Is there something else going on besides the lineage and the place that David was born? I think there is. You see, when you come with us to Israel, we'll stand at the Zion Gate, we'll look to the south, to Bethlehem, and you'll see where the lambs for the temple sacrifice were raised. Remember in the Passover, find a lamb the first year of, without blemish and pass, sacrifice it as a Passover. You put the blood on the door, on the lintels and the door of the, of the house and the angel of death will pass over you. A picture for us of putting the blood of Jesus in our hearts and how that gives us eternal life. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Well, 1,800 years before Jesus was born, Jacob was schlepping out of his time with Laban. Laban, who was as, de as deceitful as Jacob had been and kept 20 years of his life. But during that 20 years of Jacob's life, God supernaturally provided flocks and herds in a very unusual manner. It's a different story. But Jacob came out with a supernatural provision. When he got to the outskirts of Bethlehem, he set up a migdal, a migdal, a tower to watch over the flocks. And those very flocks that descended from that supernatural provision became the flocks outside of Bethlehem that were raised up very cautiously, carefully, and reverently, and used for the sacrifice in the temple because they had to have a lamb without blemish. Not only so, the shepherds were Levitical shepherds. This was not Joe Blow shepherd. These were Levitical priestly shepherds that were chosen and raised up in order to inspect and prepare these lambs for the sacrifice. Not only so, in the original languages, a manger is a birthing stall. 
And not only that, when those lambs that were ready for sacrifice in the temple and were deemed to be without blemish were found and chosen, they were wrapped in swaddling cloth and placed in the birthing stall. Not only so, the cloth was made. Can I see that priest again? The cloth was made from the garments of the high priest's family after they had done their service. So, a baby, lowly, born in a birthing stall, set aside for perfect lambs for sacrifice, wrapped in the signature cloth that only an unblemished lamb could be in, and placed in that place by the shepherds who were watching for the deliverer, who were watching for Messiah. So when they found, when the wise men, when the whole story unfolds and they find the baby wrapped in those cloths, placed in that place, they had the same revelation you're having now. Behold, the Lamb of God. John, his cousin, said it. John, whose family probably provided those cloths because John's dad was a priest, Zechariah, in the temple. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Peter says it this way. You know that you were redeemed from the futile way of life handed down from your ancestors, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood like that of a lamb without defect or spot, the blood of Messiah. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he said, our Messiah, our Passover sacrifice for us. And Revelation looks forward to when we all see him in this way, to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever. What does it mean? It means that the whole story that we speak about traditionally and the wonderful traditions we have and the foods and the, the wonderful things that the present giving and the remembering and the singing of the songs, et cetera, et cetera, was all majestically, artistically, explicitly laid out note for note and line for line through the history of Israel so that the shepherds would recognize so that you and I would know he is the one. And that's why I, I, I beg you, like I sound like Paul a little bit, very little. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. That's why I beg you to pray for my people. Pray for my people, because we don't see the Messiah. We don't have a special deal Catherine and I are working 24-7 to bring this message to the Jewish people, to our Arab cousins, and to the nations, to bring things like this to the church. Will you pray for us? Will you stand with us? Because this message has to go forth. We believe, like we heard in the song tonight, that, that, that the day is coming when the Jewish people will cry out, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's intimately connected. I've been looking more carefully at Romans 11. Romans 11, 25 and 26. I always do 26 because, you know, hey, all Israel shall be saved. Right on. But 25 says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so 
all Israel will be saved. There's a connection between the gospel and the nations. There's a connection between Christians beginning to understand where they come from and the debt that we have to the Jewish people and to Israel and the fact that God is putting us together to bring about his return. So pray for us. Final scripture, Matthew 5, 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You, Laura, are the light of the world. Every place the sole of your foot treads this holiday weekend, this season, this holiday season, this season of life, every place you go, you're carrying treasure. You've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh in you. Let it come out. Let it pour over the people around you. Bless those around you because God has raised you up for such a time as this. You are the light of the world. Amen. Amen. For more information about Beit Abba, log on to our website at tfh.org slash Beit Abba or call our office at 707-455-7790.